Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, thanks, Wes. Welcome, everyone. So glad you're here. He is risen. All right, let's do that again. The obligatory, we got to do this twice thing because the first time wasn't good enough. Let's do this again. Let's, let's act like we actually believe that this morning. He is risen. Great, thank you. Thank you for joining us online, if you're online with us as well. Uh, Let me just say this. If you are here for the first time, we are really glad that you're here. We hope that you find this place to be a welcome place and a place that you can make home for you and your family. And uh, if you were here for the first time because you were invited by somebody, let me just say how special that is for a moment. You know, that means that somebody who cares about you in your life, whether it was a friend, a family member, or a coworker, invited you to come to their church on the most important Sunday of the year. Because that's exactly what Easter Sunday is. And at the same time, you accepted. You cared enough about them to accept their invitation. And so we got all the caring vibes here this morning. I'm so excited about that as we begin to to celebrate and talk about the promise of the resurrection this morning. And what a great day to join us. I think you've probably gotten the sense that we believe that today is a big deal. We've decorated around here. We've, We've made a big deal here at North Bible Church because we do believe that what we celebrate on Easter Sunday is a big deal. And I know it's a big deal because I'm, I'm wearing a uh, dress coat this morning, and for those of you who know me, I only wear dress coats to really important things, and uh, especially when it's 90 degrees outside, and so, uh, yes, John, I do look fantastic. Thank you so much for telling me, for, for saying that, yeah. So it's a great day. In all, all seriousness, it's important for us, and hopefully you can see that. Um, and why is this day, Easter Sunday, so important? Uh, we could say that it's like any other day, right? When you woke up this morning, the, if you were just to look out in the sky, the same, or you just look outside, the same, it looks like the same day that was maybe yesterday. It'll look the same probably tomorrow. It'll feel the same tomorrow. We could really say that about any holiday that's on the calendar, right? If someone hadn't assigned Easter Sunday to this day, it might be like on any other day on the calendar. It's not like we woke up this morning and you saw Happy Easter written in the clouds this morning telling you that it was Easter Sunday. In fact, one thing you probably know is that Easter Sunday is, is celebrated actually on a different day, a different date every year. And so if you were like me, you got your, your calendar on your phone out at some point and said, what day is Easter Sunday? And realized that actually, oh, somebody assigned it to April 17th this year. And so that's why we're celebrating it today. And while it's true that as human beings, we are the ones to assign holidays to celebrate on the calendar, of course, we do it for a reason. It's what the holiday represents, what it reminds us of. This holiday and what we celebrate is a means to the representation of a greater thing that we're celebrating this morning. For Christianity, there is no more important and essential belief than what we celebrate on what we call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, what we're celebrating today is not just merely a religious belief, It's actually a historical event that we believe happened in human history as a real occurrence, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. It's an occurrence that had never happened to that point in history and hasn't happened since. It is completely unique in the way that it happened. And this event is so significant that if it didn't happen, Christianity would actually cease to exist in any recognizable and meaningful way because the resurrection of Jesus is actually the hinge point It is the foundation of the entire Christian faith. If you take that away, you don't really have much about what the Bible, what what, what the Bible's telling us, other than maybe some religious sayings and some, you know, kind of feel-good inspirational spiritual thoughts. It is the historical hinge point of the Christian faith. 
Now, of course, history is full of these kind of hinge points event, events, right? Events that change history forever once they happened. If you think about the Declaration of Independence, right? What would our nation's history be like if that event never happened? It's a hinge point of what our modern American history is all about. Can you imagine the world if D-Day never happened during World War II? What would the world look like if that hinge point historical event never happened? There's actually a show, I think, about that. Uh, But the Apostle Paul once asked a similar question regarding Christianity. What would Christianity be if Jesus never rose from the dead? And listen to what he says from 1 Corinthians 15. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now catch what Paul says here. He says, if Jesus never rose from the dead, if this historical event never actually happened, then we're still dead in our sins and our faith is essentially worthless. In fact, he goes on to say, of all people, as Christians, if we believe this and it never happened, we should be pitied because we believe in a myth. We're a bunch of fools who believe in a myth of something that never actually happened. Now think about what we are claiming with the resurrection of Jesus for a minute. We are claiming that in faith, an event happening that has never happened in history to that point, and since, and since that point, we're claiming that a man died, that he was buried in a tomb for three days and rose again. Not that he was resuscitated, not that he had a near-death experience, but that he actually died and he was dead for three days and came back from death to life. And not that this was just any man, but this was actually Jesus, God in the flesh. The one who created the universe, the one who created everything that we see, and many things we can't even see or imagine, he created it all. And how did he die in the first place? He died because he willingly went to a criminal's cross to save the world from sin. And all of that is held together by the resurrection event that we celebrate today. I've called this message today the promise of the resurrection. So if you're wondering why we make such a big deal, about the resurrection of Jesus. We've said all these things about why the resurrection is important. This is what it's all about. Most of us probably know the resurrection story. Usually if you're here on an Easter Sunday morning, we do a pretty good job of just telling the the resurrection story, what happened. So you may know exactly how it went down. You may know exactly how it went. But many times we forget to talk about the significance of the resurrection. Why did the resurrection happen? And if it did happen, and since it did happen, how does that impact my life right now today, April 17th, 2022, as we're sitting in these seats right now, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in my life right now? I'll tell you, that's the promise of the resurrection that we're going to be talking about today. And as we look at, uh, we're going to be looking at one of the places that tell us about the effects of the resurrection. There are many places throughout scripture that God tells us about why the resurrection matters. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 22 today. Now, You may know, if you've been with us through the series, you may know that we are finishing up a long series that we've been going through for the past several months on the book of Revelation. Um, It's been several months that we've been in it, and we're finally at the last place of the book. This will be our last uh, sermon in it. This will be our last message in it. But one of the great things about it is we're going to look at the last words, not only of the book of Revelation, but the last words of the Bible. This is the last section of the entire Bible. Now, you may not be familiar with the book of Revelation, but if you are and maybe you've never gone through it, you may know at least a couple of things about it. First of all, it is, a, it is the last book of the Bible, and then secondly, it has a lot to say about the future. 
And we're going to see those two things together today as we look at the very last words of the Bible. We get to see how the story ends today as we finish up Revelation chapter 22. But as we look at this chapter, we find ourselves in the middle, middle of a wider book with some wider context. So I want to get us all on the same page to bring us up, all up to speed kind of on where we're at. The book of Revelation itself is a fascinating book. It was written by a, name, by a man by the name of John in the first century in the Roman Empire. And John, at this point, finds himself in prison on the prison isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And John is there because there's a man named Domitian who is the Roman emperor, and, he is, and he's kind of ruling over the Roman Empire at that time. And to say the least, Domitian is not very fond of Christians. And John was recognized as one of the early Christian leaders, and so John is one of the first to be thrown out into exile on this prison planet, or this prison planet, this prison uh, island. And he writes down, and it almost seems like he's on a different planet from the vision that he gets, but he writes down this vision then that he gets from God. God comes to him in a vision, and he says, I want you to comfort the other Christians who are experiencing the same kind of threat of persecution that you have experienced, the same, the same kind of temptation to compromise their faith, and so I'm going to give you a vision that I want you to write down. And this entire book of Revelation is basically one big vision that John writes down, and as we've described it before, this is God giving a picture of what is going on behind the scenes of human history. And so we've talked about it this way, it's like God pulling back the curtain, allowing us to be able to see what he sees, and, and, and showing us where all of human history is headed so that we would have hope in the midst of the trials and the difficulties that we faced in this world. And God's goal was that those who were experiencing persecution at the time, as Christians, would be encouraged as a result of, uh, uh, of what he tells them here. And so we see this long vision with a bunch of different scenes that feature all kinds of amazing images, things like seven-headed dragons and earthquakes and plagues. Exciting stuff, right? You, those of you who've been through it, it's exciting stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, but if seven-headed dragons aren't your cup of tea, don't worry, we're not going to be talking about that this morning. All that stuff is in the past as far as what we finished with in the book of Revelation. We're going to be talking about the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. And what we find ourselves in is actually the most detailed description of what heaven is going to be like that we find in the entire Bible. We're right in the middle of that, and especially the first few verses we're going to read today continue that description. And so before we get into all this, we're going to begin reading here in a minute from Revelation chapter 22. Let me say again that I'm, that I'm glad you're here. And since you are here, no matter what you may believe about Christianity or the resurrection or heaven, I would invite you over the next 30 minutes or so that we're talking about this to just have an open mind and an open heart. I mean, you're here anyway, right? Might as well just, uh, just kind of take this in and see what God has to say to you. Because here's one of the most important things. We're going to see... Uh, God's promises today, and hopefully you'll have a chance to think through this as God's way of saying that he loves you, because this is what God does. God promises because he loves us. This is where these promises come from. It's a lot like wedding vows on a wedding day. God is making vows to us because he loves us, and he wants what is best for us. We've already talked a couple of times this morning, uh, sung about John 3, 16, so God, God so loved the world. Well, this is how God so loves the world. This is the way in which he does. He loves, he loves us by promising, and the promises that come from the resurrection of Jesus are vivid in this place. So let's read from Revelation chapter 22. Again, this is John who writes these words, and I'm going to try to read it with, I'm not the best necessarily at reading with like kind of an upbeat, exciting, wonderment type voice, and so just imagine that this is like wonderment. John is reading in wonderment, and I'm going to try to do the best I can. I'm going to laugh. It's not my normal voice probably, but here we go. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but, but, but the throne of God and its lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, well, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by the gates." Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. End. That's the last words of the Bible. Now, as we read this, I think it's important to remember that, again, Revelation is made up of a vision with a series of scenes that come with it. And these images and these symbols often point to a greater meaning, another meaning. What's great about most of the images, especially like the ones that we see in Revelation 22, is that they're full of promises of God. In other words, promises of God are coming behind these images. That's why God shows us these images. So let's take a closer look at each of, the, each of these, especially the big ones here. Uh, we see a, a few of those images here at the beginning of the chapter in the description, really, of the vision of heaven. And one thing to remember is this. We went over this last week but the, in the previous chapter, but what is described for us is basically a physical heaven, a physical new heaven and new earth, right? In Revelation 21, we're told it's a new heaven and new earth. It's a physical place, here we're told it's a city and a garden. We get that picture of that. And I think that's important because we might see sometimes heaven displayed as like a place where we kind of float around in the, cl the clouds and have a halo on our head and play a harp and sit on clouds as disembodied spirits all day. But what we get in, what we get in the Bible actually is a completely different picture from that. What we get in the Bible is a new creation, a new earth that looks maybe a lot like the earth that we live in now, just a whole lot better. And we're going to live there as completely renewed human beings. Just as God created us, body, soul, spirit, mind, all of that. 
to enjoy the creation that he's given us. And this is actually one of the promises of the resurrection, that just as Jesus rose from the dead with a physical body, everyone who follows Jesus by faith will follow him into the resurrection in the same way. Right? We'll get to that more, more about that a little bit later. So what we have here, though, in this discussion, uh, description from John is a physical place, but the vision is also full of all these different images as well. Let's talk about those for a minute. The first image that John sees is a river of living water, full of crystal clear water. Now think about, for a moment, what that might represent, especially from a spiritual standpoint. I mean, what, what kind of thoughts come to mind when you think about a crystal clear, refreshing river of water that is flowing from the throne of God in this case, right? None other than the throne of God. Right? How about the phrase living water? What does that bring to mind? I mean, water like this is refreshing. It's life-giving. It's life-sustaining. It's thirst-quenching. There also seems to be something spiritually significant about this water because, of course, John mentions that it's coming directly from where God is and it's coming from the Lamb who is Jesus. So what this seems to represent, at least in a general way, is that spiritual life flows from God. And, of course, this is where the Bible, this is what the Bible presents to us from the beginning. He was our creator who has given us life, and it's his design from the beginning that we would spend life with him in a place where we're completely flourishing spiritually with him forever as, his, as our creator and we as the ones who are created for him. Now, we may know the story, but early on, human beings decided that that wasn't a good enough thing for them to pursue. They decided they wanted to do it differently. And so they violated God's design walked away from that reality, uh, resulting in sin and brokenness. And the point of this image, though, in Revelation 22, is that God has provided a way back to the original design. Eternal life. What we were made from, or for, from the beginning. And it flows from our relationship with Jesus. It makes me think about a scene from Jesus' earthly ministry that we see in John chapter 4. You may be familiar with this scene, but this is where Jesus meets a woman at the well in Samaria. As Jesus begins to engage her in conversation, it quickly becomes clear that this woman has had a difficult life, especially relationally. As Jesus points out, she's already had five marriages and been divorced five times, and she's now living with a sixth man, so she's working essentially on her sixth marriage. Now, six marriages is a lot in general, especially because we get the sense that this woman is a little bit younger. So no matter where you're living, no matter what culture you're in, six marriages is just a lot. But it was a lot especially for that time and that setting. It might as well have been 20, because the reality of this is the focus is not necessarily on the marriages, it's not necessarily on the men or the husbands that she's been with. Really what is being pointed out here is that this woman was obviously searching for something deeper. She had a compulsion that led her to believe that whatever it is inside of me that's not being fulfilled, maybe I can just find it in the next man, the next marriage, the next relationship. And Jesus picks up on this as she continues to kind of repeat this cycle of going from husband to husband, hoping that the next marriage would satisfy that deeper need that she felt, but she couldn't really put her finger on. And so Jesus comes up to the well, he talks to her, and he points to the water, and he says this in John chapter 4. He said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the, of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what is he saying to her? He's essentially saying to her that your search for something to really fulfill you cannot be found in another marriage. It cannot be found in another relationship. It cannot be found in another husband. You may think it quenches your thirst for a time, and it feels that way. 
But as we know, as desert dwellers, right, sometimes you drink water, and as soon as you're done with that water, you're like, you're thirsty two seconds later, right? This is kind of what's going on with her spiritually. She drinks it, it feels okay for the moment, and then immediately it fades away. And Jesus is telling her the only way to truly quench that thirst is to quench your spiritual thirst, but you can't find that in the things of this world. You won't find it in a marriage, you won't find it in an experience, you won't find it in a job title, you won't find it in making more money, you won't find it in worldly success, in a title, you won't find it in retirement. Whatever it is that you're telling yourself, that next thing is what is going to fulfill me. You won't find it in that, in this world. All those things may satisfy for a moment, but you're always going back to the well to draw more and more and more. Instead, Jesus says, you can only find it in the water that I give to you. And in that moment, Jesus is making a promise to that woman at the well. He's making a promise to us today and extending an invitation. What you are really looking for is living, running water. And so when you go back to Revelation chapter 22, what you see is the image of this living water, the spring of water welling up to eternal life. The thing that Jesus was talking about is pictured for us right here, coming from God in the new creation. It's flowing from, the, from God and the Lamb who is Jesus, and you see the fulfillment of that promise made that he made back to the woman at the well. So the first promise that we see come from this scene is the promise of living water, the promise of eternal relationship and fellowship with God through Jesus. As the scene progresses then back in Revelation chapter 22, we see how central this living water really is. It feeds everything else in the scene. Everything in heaven, the trees, the fruit, the people, even it has some kind of effect in terms of like the consequences of the light in heaven. All of it comes from the river of living water in the middle of the city. Everything seems to flow from it. And there's a big statement in all of this. It's from our relationship and our fellowship with God that everything else flows. I quoted from John Piper, from Pastor John Piper last week when we talked about heaven. And he asked the question, if you could live in heaven with every good thing you could imagine, every satisfying type of experience, with full health, with all the food you could dream of, with all the wonderful blessings of what heaven is going to be like, and with everybody you ever loved in the world there with you, could you have all of that and be happy if Jesus were not there? Right? And it's a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, like, do you love God or do you just love the things that God gives you? But it's rhetorical because what we see in this scene is that all of those things come from Jesus, right? And they won't exist eternally without him. They cannot run without living water. Living water is what feeds them and gives, and gives life to them and sustains them, including, including us as well. So again, it's from Jesus who is the source of the living water. Now, notice that the tree of life is also mentioned here. Now, the tree of life you may be familiar with, intentionally brings us back to where? The Garden of Eden, in the very beginning of the biblical story. It's the last time we see a reference to the tree of life, and it's mentioned here again in Revelation chapter 22. And the tree of life reference is designed to bring us back to the Garden of Eden, this bigger picture of a world that existed before sin and brokenness entered the picture, which is explained here when it says there's not anything that's accursed, right? In the new heavens, it's nothing, in other words, nothing is under the curse of sin and evil, just like it was in the very beginning. And here's another promise. God promises to remove evil and brokenness from creation forever. However, it's not only the curse of sin and evil removed, but flourishing is also everywhere. Notice that in the garden, the tree of life was created to be uh, the provision for human beings. Right? It was the place that represented in Eden everything that God provided for the human beings who were going to live there. It was a place of provision. When we look again in Revelation 22, what we see about the tree of life is surprising in some ways. 
because it bears fruit, 12, John says, 12 different types of fruit, of fruit throughout the year. In other words, every single month it bears a different type of fruit, which is kind of strange, right? Because we don't see that anywhere in creation right now, I don't think. I'm not aware of any kind of tree that bears like 12 different kinds of fruit. If you've got an orange tree in your backyard, you know it's going to give you oranges. It's not going to give you oranges like every month, maybe twice a year, but it's definitely not going to produce apples and bananas and grapes and almonds and so on and so forth, right? But John sees this tree, the tree of life, that's producing 12 different types of fruit. And as amazing as that is, of course, if the number 12 is ringing a bell for you, if it's kind of piquing uh, your sensibilities, uh, and we've been through the book of Revelation, you know that the book, or the number 12 often represents something else. And what it represents in this case is completeness. In every case, when we see the number 12, it represents God's provision, God's plan, the completeness of God's plan. And so what's being told here, to us here is that this tree of life represents all provision given to us and to all human beings forever. That God promises as a good father to take care of every provision, every need we will ever have for eternity. It's the greatest provision. It's more than all the money in the world could ever buy, and it's for every person for all of eternity, anytime they need it. So here's another promise. That God, out of his good love, as, or his love as a good father, will provide in abundance for us in ways that will be satisfying and flourishing. And look, I don't know exactly what that means, it, it's probably beyond our imagination to even, you know, speculate on what that might mean. But what we're told here is that there's flourishing and abundance everywhere from a God who loves us. And we aren't done with the tree of life yet because there's one more thing we're told here. John says that the leaves of the tree of life will provide healing for the nations. So we have the removal of sin and evil, the provision of everything that we'll ever need or want, and then we get to this place of healing for all the nations. As a little bit ambiguous at first, but if we join this with what we see in Revelation 21, we're reminded of, uh, of John in Revelation 21 seeing the new heaven and the new earth as a place where every tear will be wiped away. There will no longer be mourning or pain or brokenness or disease or death or anything like that. And this picture of the leaves kind of bring that into context, that the healing that is talked about here means that we will be fully healed and restored in every way. It certainly starts spiritually, as we are healed spiritually by Jesus' death and resurrection, but it also extends more fully as a healing of all the sickness and brokenness of creation. Think about it, physical, mental, emotional, relational, social, political, all things healed. All the brokenness and pain that is caused in all of those ways in the world, all completely healed. So that there's nothing left in the new creation that would cause pain or brokenness or tears or heartache. So here's another promise, that God will heal everything that needs to be healed and won't allow anything into heaven that will cause any more tears or mourning or death or disease. Then moving to verse 4, John says that those in heaven will see God's face and his name will be on, his on their foreheads. This is one of my favorite promises in this whole thing because you get this picture of the intimacy that we will have with God. It makes me think of, for instance, when Moses met with God in the tabernacle. And we're told that Moses met with God face to face like a man meets with his friend. We have that picture here. We also have kind of a, a, sh a shadow of this or a promise of this when we see Jesus. When Jesus lives among us as a human being and he eats with people and he has fellowship with people and he talks with people and he's face to face. I mean, as I look at the biblical story, those are two times where I would actually want to really be there. Like in the tabernacle with Moses, seeing how that whole thing goes down and then just being able to spend like a meal with Jesus face to face. I've always wanted to do that. 
And what we're getting here is, is the reality that those things, as great as they were, are just shadows of what will come for every person in eternity, that we will meet and see God face to face. His name will be on our forehead, which is a way of saying that we are in intimate relationship with him. We are his, and we are known by him, and we know him in a way that we never have before, for eternity. What a promise. And so there's another promise here, that we will see God face to face and have the kind of close relationship with our creator that all human beings need, that all human beings ache for, to be truly known and to be known by the one who has created you. The next reference from verse 5 is not as straightforward necessarily as the others. It's a reference to there not being any night on the new earth. To make sense of this, we have to read the rest of that verse and also connect it back to the previous chapter as well. But it tells us that there'll be no need for a lamp or a sun and that God will reign forever. And really the point is not necessarily the no night thing. I mean, we can imagine what it would be like to be in eternity with no night, it always being day. I don't know that that's necessarily the reference here. It could or couldn't be. I don't know if there'll be sunrises or sunsets. But the point is this, is that what this is doing is comparing light to darkness in terms of the presence of God representing, represented by light versus the absence of God or chaos and brokenness being represented by darkness. And what is being said here is that the light of God will be everywhere, just like in Revelation 21, right? There's no need for the sun because God's glory will be everywhere. There's no need for a lamp because Jesus himself will be that lamp, carrying the light, light of God everywhere. In other words, the presence of God will be everywhere in new creation. The character of God will extend everywhere. There won't be any more brokenness or chaos or disruption or confusion because everywhere the light of God will illuminate every corner of the new creation. And here's yet another promise. The presence and character of God will be everywhere and will forever remove spiritual darkness and chaos. Now to cap all these things off, all these scenes off, the angel who has shown John the vision says that these words are trustworthy and true. That everything, not only here, but everything in the entire book of Revelation, everything from the beginning all the way to the end of the Bible is true and we can trust them. Another promise comes out of this, that God tells us the truth and that we are meant to trust in these words. And that God tells us the truth because he loves us. And you've heard that before in church, but think about how important that is, especially in the world that we live in now, because when you're not sure whether you can trust anything that you hear, but you can trust in the words of God because they are true and faithful. This last promise ties it all up, and it's found in verse 7. In this statement, in verse 7, but also in verse 12, and also in verse 20. It's what we see it happen three different times. There is a promise that happens three different times that comes from Jesus, and it's simply this, this promise from Jesus. I will come back. I will come back again. I will return. And this is the promise that ties everything else together. All the promises, the promise of the resurrection, really the purpose of the resurrection is so that Jesus could return to bring the fruit of everything that he won through the resurrection. We're told in Scripture that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. This is the final fruits of the resurrection, if you will. This is the harvest and what it looks like. If we're asking why is it that Jesus rose from the dead, there's a lot of reasons and a lot of ways we might be able to answer that. But the main reason is this, so that he could return and restore new creation and bring new creation for eternity. He is the first fruits and he'll bring the final fruits. And so when Jesus says he, he will return, he says a couple of things. He says he will bring his recompense with him. I don't know if you know what that word means. I had to look it up, actually. Turns out recompense means both reward and punishment. In other words, what someone is due. And he even says it right after that. I will repay everyone for what he has done. 
which is a reference to justice, it's a reference to making everything right, and it's a broad statement of the goodness and the righteousness that we can trust in Jesus. That when he brings his judgment, it will be good and right and just in every way. We have all kinds of different ideas about judgment and justice and what we believe should happen in our minds and in our hearts, but Jesus is the one who will bring true justice in a righteous way for every person. And he says then that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, a reference to the fact that he is sovereign over history. And if you put these two things together, that Jesus is good and righteous in every way that he judges, and he's wise in every way that he judges, and that he is also the sovereign, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, that he has power over it all, we can trust in the fact that truly his words are faithful and they're true. Because he is faithful in all that he does, and he can actually bring about the promises that he says that he will bring about because he has the power to do it. And nothing can thwart his purposes or his plans. They will happen because he is sovereign. Now, we've talked about a lot today, I think, on one level. We've answered the question of why resurrection is so necessary. But on another level, we still need to answer that more personal part of the question. How is resurrection important to you? What does it have to do with each of us? Now, this section turns out to be pretty clear as far as what the impacts are of the resurrection on us, depending on how we believe in this and whether we trust it or not. There are two types of people that are mentioned here. First, there's an invitation, and there's two different invitations, by the way. First, there's an invitation to those who are described as the ones who wash their robes. We've seen so far in this book a few different times that washing your robes refers to those who have been saved by uh, the forgiveness of Jesus, those who have been saved by the righteousness of Jesus, those who trust in Jesus' salvation on their behalf. They're seen as people who take off the sin that covers them and the deeds that cover them, and they put on instead the righteousness of Jesus that covers them. And these are the white robes. And Jesus says for those who wear those robes, here is the invitation. Welcome to the city. Come into the tree of life. Partake in everything that God has prepared for you. All the promises here are yours in Christ. And then there's another group that's addressed here, and there's another invitation that goes out. For those who are not God's people of faith, who have not yet trusted in Jesus for their salvation, there is an invitation here in verse 17, and it's so important, I want to read it again for you. In Revelation 22:17, it says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take of the water of life without price. The invitation is to come especially for those who recognize that they are thirsty, that they are thirsty spiritually, for those who are like the woman at the well. They're searching for living water that quenches their deepest thirst. At the same time, they feel like somebody who is searching for things in all the wrong places, and those things never fully quench the way that you expect them to. St. Augustine, who, had, who was an early church writer and pastor, had gone through this in his life. He was a younger guy who had experienced everything that he could. He kind of had, uh, YOLO didn't exist at that time, but if it did, he was all about, he was all about, you know, you only live once, right? And he tried everything that he could do. He was a partier. He was like all into women. He was doing all these things that he could, anything he could get his hands on. Later on, the, God got a hold of his heart. He became a pastor, and later on in his life, he wrote this. Our hearts were made for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. And as Augustine said, I was restless my entire life. And as human beings, until living water of God fills that thirst, we will always come back to the well, restless every time. And it doesn't matter what it is, whatever that well is, whatever that water is that you're drawing from, it will never fully satisfy 
if it's not the living water of Jesus. For those who recognize that they are thirsty, the same invitation goes out to them that Jesus gave so graciously to the woman at the well. And he continues to give to anyone who will trust in his promise. Come to me, and I will give you living water without price. Notice it says without price, without cost, completely free. And the reason is that Jesus already paid that price on your behalf. He paid that, he paid that price through his death on the cross so that this water could be freely given to anyone who receives it by faith. And that is the final and greatest promise that all the rest of the promises that we've talked about rest on. That if you come to him, he will give you living water free of cost. That's why we have promises here. The last words in Jesus, last words of Jesus in the Bible are, surely I am coming soon. You know, after the Apostle Paul asked those questions that we talked about earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, like what if the resurrection never happened? He says, of course, a little later, it did happen. And because it did, the promise of the resurrection and these last words that we have from Jesus are true. And we look forward to when he returns. And just like any other promise that Jesus makes, he will make good on that promise and he will return one day. The question is, what does that mean for you? Is there hope for you when he returns? Will his promises be fulfilled in your life when he returns again because you have trusted in him? Let's pray. And as we pray this morning, I just want to make some space for you to talk with God. I mean, after all, that's all that prayer is anyway, us talking to God. And, and so I want to allow you now, Lord, as, as we talk to God and, and, we, and we think about what he said to us this morning, Think about what the resurrection means, what is the promise of the resurrection, all those things we've talked about this morning. What is it that you want to say to God this morning? Maybe it's just thank you. Thank you that I have this resurrection life and I have the promises that are secure because I know Jesus. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you're thinking to yourself, I, you know, somebody brought me this morning and you know, I didn't really want to come, but I'm here because I care about them. I'm not sure whether this stuff is true, but at least I'm open to thinking about it. And maybe in that case, as many people have throughout history, they just call out, God, is this true? If it is, show me that it is. So I want to allow you just a couple of minutes to talk with God now. Lord, as we leave here uh, this morning, we leave out the doors and we hang out with family and we look up in the sky, it's going to look like any other day, at least a nice spring slash summer day that's 90 degrees. Um, and we'll be reminded, Lord, of the fact that you're our creator and that you create beautiful days for us to enjoy in this world. But Father, what this day means as Easter Sunday, as Resurrection Sunday, has so much more to it. We know that, Lord. We ask that you would impress upon our hearts that today, although every Sunday, although every day you give us is a new day, there is something about the day that makes it different and it's because of what we celebrate. It's because of what you have done. As we were saying earlier, it's what you have done. And what you have done, Lord, is beyond, in many ways, our ability to comprehend, even fully appreciate and give thanks to you about, but we know that you have promised us eternal life because of what Jesus has done 
the cross and the resurrection. And we read these words today as promises that we can trust in because we do believe that these words that we read are faithful and true. We ask that you would impress them upon our hearts and that anything that we're holding on to would be released. That we would see you, Lord, for who you are. The God who loves us, the God who's created us, the God who has redeemed us, and the God who says to us, come. Come and receive living water without price. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us so much. That you paid that price for us. So that we would enjoy the final fruits and the harvest of resurrection. We pray these things in your name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Amen. Thank you again for being here. Uh, we want to say, if you again, if you were invited by somebody, we want to invite you to come back and join us for the next six weeks. As Wes mentioned earlier, we are doing a focus uh, over the next six weeks called Open House, an event that we have here. And it, we phrased it Open House just for that kind of reason. Just like if you were at an open house for like a, a house or real estate or something like that, you can just kind of come and go and check the place out as you'd like and then leave and you don't have to deal with high-pressure sales. We're not coming at you with a high-pressure sales pitch, so to speak. We just want you, if you're looking for a place to find a home and a church, and this felt like a place that was welcoming to you, I want to invite you to join us for the next six weeks and just check things out. We're also going to be focusing on a six-week series that we feel like is going to address all people, no matter where they're at, inside and outside the church. And I'm going to read the questions for you. They're up on the screen as well. I want to make sure I get the wording of these things right. But we're going to be talking about things like, what story am I living out? That is week one. Week two is, how can I find purpose in my life? Week three is, how can I have victory in my life? Week four is, how should I live with others? Week five is, how can we fix the broken things? And week six is, what is really the good life? And we're going to be talking about all those things from a, from a perspective of there is uh, an answer out there that we've all probably heard to each one of those questions, an answer that's reinforced in the world. But what does God have to say about each one of these questions? We'd like to share with you because we believe those things are critically important. How we answer those questions are critically important, and God has something to say about each one of those. So I want to invite you to join us. If you invited somebody today and they weren't able to come for this week, uh, invite them again for this six-week series, maybe all six weeks or a couple of the weeks. Next week might be a good week to get them started because we are having food trucks. We're going to have free food, and uh, it would be a great time to invite people to be a part of that as we uh, celebrate together and meet again next Sunday. Uh, we have the Zaratis who are our prayer partners. If you need prayer as you leave here uh, this morning, if you leave the service, they'd be happy to pray with you. We also have prayer request cards that are located on the table as you leave here this morning. If you want to fill out one of those prayer request cards, drop it in the offering stand as you leave here this morning. Um, you can go ahead and throw those in there. We'll make sure that we're praying over those things and over those needs that you have uh, going forward. All right? Thanks. Hope you all have a happy Easter. He is risen. Great. See you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. 
For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.